Hello and welcome to Willosophy. My name is Will Anderson. I am the host of the podcast. Uh, this is our first episode back after a big break. Uh, thank you to everybody who wrote to me and asked for the podcast to come back. I've been struggling a little bit this year with uh, finding guests for it, finding uh, the reason that I wanted to do the podcast and what the podcast was going to be about. Uh, when I first imagined it, it was about talking to interesting people about if they had a philosophy and what that philosophy was and how it manifested itself in their lives, I guess. But I just didn't want to talk to a bunch of strangers. I wanted to talk to people who were connected to my life so people could see a little pattern of, okay, here's me and my influences and the people I know. And and maybe I know a wide range of people and that gives people a little bit of a you know, different insight into that you don't always have to be amongst like-minded people there'll be people on this podcast who share completely different philosophies uh, opposing philosophies to the ones that i have so uh welcome back uh if you're tuning in for the first time i'm going to post the older episodes back later in this series but this is the first one and it's a great first one uh perfect first one in fact it kind of sums up the mission statement of what i'm trying to do uh there is one thing i'm going to keep from the old format which is this this is how i used to start the podcast so i'm going to start it this way uh with my new guest uh, who are you? I am John Safran. Yeah, that's pretty good. Is, is that, but am I meant to like, uh, like, who am I within me or something like that? Is that the point of it? I just like to see what people say. Sometimes oh, yeah. people lead like, you know, with their job, like yeah. really solidly in that. Like, you yeah. I am John Safran. I think that is probably a perfectly honest and probably the most honest, like, you know, <laughs> That's the place to be. But some people go, I am John Safran and I am a book, like I write a book or like, and then you go, okay, well, that's immediately how you identify yourself. Well, the, the, the two things that spring to mind when you ask that question is I was once in a Buddhist monastery in Japan and I had to sit with this Buddhist monk and the koan he gave me, like that I had to meditate on. I had to go off and he said, who are you? Go off and meditate and come back. And I kept on coming back and trying to come up with answers and every answer he like rejected which was just getting me more furious that's what that's when i knew i wasn't a buddhist maybe because you, I, I guess you meant to come, become calmer and calmer can you remember what like the order like some of the order of the process you went through in trying to like say who you were i don't know i, I think I, I, I was like well i don't know like i, I said i said I, I was like this i was a bit squeaky and i said like oh you know i do documentaries that's why i'm here and he goes no 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 who are you and, he goes, Come back. and then like i came back and i was going oh is this going to be something where i have to say oh i am nothing so i so i went i went back All right so you went back with what answer. you thought the answer yeah. should be i am nothing right. i am no yeah, and, and that the wasn't the answer either for last year's and exam that, and that wasn't the answer either so i was get, i was like really furious that who i was which I thought I was wasn't the right answer, nor was my suck job answer the right answer. And I honestly can't remember how that ended. But then years later, no, in fact, years earlier, but, but I only talked about it years later. I was once backstage with the Beastie Boys because, and this was before I was on the telly or anything, and it was because the night before their DJ, DJ Hurricane, had been at the lounge in Melbourne, this bar, and he'd started chatting up my then-girlfriend. Right. And then the and next... thought, oh, this will get us backstage. Yeah, and then the next thing I know, <laughs> like, he was like, hey, I can get you two tickets. And, 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 next, and ne- next thing you know, we had tickets. And then afterwards, he kind of, like, ushered me 
backstage to right. meet the Beastie Boys so he could, like, try to oh. bust a move on my girlfriend. These so are the beast, you are the first person in history has, who's had the Beastie Boys as the wingman. <laughs> yes. That's basically what you were. Yes. And so then I was backstage and there was Mike D and Ad Rock and MCA and, and, and they said, oh, like, oh, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm... John Safran, he goes, yeah, 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 but but who are you? And like, and so I thought because I was quite in- interested in spirituality, and I knew that they were Jewish, or two out of three were Jewish, one right. half Jewish. I said, oh, I'm Jewish, like you. And then uh, Ad Rock said, I'm not Jewish, or whatever, which was like really weird because he was like definitely biologically <laughs> <he> Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> and then they kept on going, who are you? Who are you? And yeah. So, so and anyway, I put that piece together years later for Music Jamboree and someone contacted me and said, oh, my God, isn't it, like, weird that you, these two tense moments in two different series over the years is someone like, who are you? Who are you? And, and you not being able to answer. Well, I mean, it's an interesting place for us to start this, and I guess it's why I start with that question because I yep. guess that's what this podcast is about. Mm. Who are you? Who are we? You know, who, who am I? It's, I guess it's all those things, the thing that we are asking ourselves and trying to define in ourselves every day. So uh, I will start with the other big question and then we yes. will go on from there, which is do you have a philosophy? Do you subscribe to a philosophy? Have you ever had a philosophy? I think, yeah, I think I've had several, but the, the one that comes to mind immediately when you asked me before the mics are turned on, I was going, oh, what is my philosophy? Here's definitely one of them, which is the sky doesn't fall in. Oh, that's good. I, and, I, oh, I already like that a lot. Okay, and, explain more what you mean by that. And, and people use the excuse that the sky is going to fall in to sort of like not do things. All the time. And it's probably I, the number one, like, I mean, across everything that we do in our lives, yep. the number one thing that prevents us from doing what we actually want to do yep. is the idea of what would happen, what are all the bad things that could happen. And I think the reason this really cemented in my head when I was quite younger oh, this is good. This was, is good. was because I was reading this, uh, you know, in university, I'd always try to, like, find out, you know, all the names of, I'd, I'd want to read their books of, like, oh, who are these big names that everyone talks about? So I read this uh, biography by Edward Said, who's this uh, Palestinian writer, and so it's, the, the, it, people are going to be really annoyed that I've, like, nicked this Palestinian writer's philosophy, <laughs> but, but hasn't, like, applied it to be a freedom fighter or anything. I've just applied it to my right. actual life or whatever. But and anyway, so he... Classic was, white privilege. Yes. <laughs> so he talked about how... Because he was talking about how everyone, everyone makes a big drama that, that they can't stand up for the Palestinians and, like, they make this big hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo and it's really scary. And he just goes, you know what? He, he, he was saying, listen, I'm, I'm a Palestinian activist and you know what? This guy doesn't fall in. Right. Like, like so, so something as sort of like as heated as that, he, he was just saying people totally exaggerate uh, according to him, how, how like the consequences if you're going to like take that the the political stand or whatever. So, I, I, so- I mean, I, I even find that like on a very micro level, I was thinking about this week. You know, because there's all this debate in Australia in particular, and for our mm. overseas listeners, there's a national broadcaster called the ABC, which mm. is publicly funded. Cost taxpayers about twelve cents a day each. Uh, yeah. You know, but it's a massive organisation and it provides services right across the country. But there's been some you know, possibly ideological budget cuts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, opposed by the government, uh, proposed by the government. But then on the other side, uh, in Victoria, they just had a state election where all the major newspapers said that uh, they should re-elect the, uh, the Liberal government and the Labor government got in. Yeah. 
And it's just one of those weeks where you're going, we spent all this time arguing about all this like excess power and who's biased and who's. Yeah. But like most of the time, people just do what they think. Yeah, yeah. Like for all sure. the papers said, you should keep these guys. And everyone just went, yeah, fuck you, papers. You know, like this is the time they're, this is not even biased. This is the time they're just telling you outright. And things change and the sky doesn't fall. That's a very micro level to, to what your thing is. But, and, I think but, that- but because at the same time as I was reading this with Edward Said, I was also, I'd, starting, I'd started doing my own stuff and I'd kind of annoyed Ray Martin, which I'm sure some of your listeners, Australian listeners will remember. Well, well talk us through that a little bit. Well, I, I, did a, I did a piece of shtick. I was doing a documentary looking at the media because I just got into the media myself. So I was like really fascinated by the scaffolding that was like just out of shot, like how you put something together and how you re-edit things to manipulate things, like things I'm totally desensitised to now. Right, but you had the tourist's eye. Like a a thing that in stand-up comedy is very powerful, you know, being able to go to a place with fresh eyes and see things that they see every day and so they don't notice how absolutely ridiculous they are yeah. you had that you were a newcomer in an industry and you hadn't like been training to be in that industry yeah. all your life you suddenly were catapulted into it and you were like why does this work like this yes for sure so i did this documentary that looked at that and one of the things i did was uh you're a disruptor yes <laughs> one of the things i did was to, like do a bit of an examination flipping the tables of this guy called ray martin who at the time was hosting a show called a current affair and he was like the big archetype of current affairs programming where journalists would go out and stick their foot in the door and shame shonky electricians and shame the unemployed. And, and well, it's one of those classic examples of a power media, powerful, mm. at the time, the most powerful media organisation in Australia, protecting uh, the, and run by the most uh, rich and powerful man in Australia at the time distracting the general populace from the things that are being done at the big end by pointing out that there's a chunky washing machine repairman down your block or whatever, right? Yeah, and, and there was no social media to fight back. So if you were shamed on this show, there, there was not much you could do. You could, like, try to write a letter to the Green Guide. You could try to write a letter to the Media Watch on the ABC. Maybe they'd take your case. And now, anyway, so he, the current affairs had gone after this family called the Paxtons because... The, the youngsters in the family apparently were offered jobs on this holiday resort and they refused to take the job. So he was like, this is, uh, the reporter was like, you know, these bums, why, why are they lazy? So anyway, th- then that had become a big thing. So anyway, so I did a thing where I kind of flipped the tables and I turned up to Ray Martin's house and kind of pretended I was outraged that he like didn't wake up and didn't get to work until 10 in the morning. And he, it was like, it was really perfect what he did because he, he finally came out right. and he shoved his hand in front of the camera, just like all the shonky people had shoved their hands in the right. camera, and he gra- grabbed me by the collar. Yeah. It was like, like, you, like, it was like, like you've learned nothing. Yeah. Did you watch none of those clips? Yes. And so he, he, he looked absolutely guilty right. of something. Right. And really, he wasn't guilty of anything. No, if you just come out sensibly and yeah. normally and just gone... You're an idiot. Yeah, but but I also wasn't accused. Was, <laughs> like I wasn't literally accusing him of being lazy. But he no. like he because he he thought he had to explain himself. He goes, "Listen, I was at work until eleven right. last night. I'm often at work till eleven. So the fact that I'm not at work and, I'm, and, and it just said, it just said to me how much you can make someone look guilty. Right. Yeah. So the point for me wasn't. Yeah, really, he was guilty of nothing. Really, he was guilty of nothing really. But I'd somehow managed to make the host of the current affairs show that does this all the time 
look guilty and do exactly the same things as all these innocent members of the so public. So what do. hope does anybody else have? Yes. Anyway, so that happened and then... Like he was the biggest that's guy in I the think, media. By the, way, I, by the way, I think that's why we love when we have, and if anyone's never seen this, you should go, Google a guy called Corey Worthington. Do you remember the party kid, Corey yeah. Worthington? And there was that famous interview on A Current Affair, I think it was, where he just, I mean, he just, he just nailed it. It yeah. was just one of those things where you were just like, oh, you won. How mm. did that happen? Like, I don't think he won on purpose, but he won nevertheless. It was like a, a majestic moment, like a <laughs> David versus Goliath moment. Okay, so. So, so... And so everyone was telling me that, like, because the next day, uh, like, pretty much my show was pulled and, and everyone at the ABC was kind of bullshitting and pretending. It, it had nothing to do with Ray contacting them and bringing me down. But anyway, people just told me, like, this was an awful thing that had happened. Like, it's over. Yeah. My, I, my, my career is dead now because I've upset the wrong people. And then, I don't know, I, then, then the sky didn't fall in. Talk me through. Talk me through, though, um, and, and, and because I've, I think this is an interesting area, and I think it would be interesting for people to hear this, because I think you know that idea of failing, and not just the idea of failing, you know, because that keeps us from so many things. These ideas of failing that we've invented that probably will never happen. But here's a time where it did happen. You were just doing something that was in your, you know, world. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise anyone who knew anything about what you did up to that point, that yeah. that was the sort of thing you were doing, right? Yeah. So, so you, that could have been any of the things that you did yeah. that went wrong that way and suddenly you're not working. And yeah. you, you, So what were you thinking at the time? What was your reaction at the time? Were you angry? Were you disappointed? Were you shocked? Were you confused? Like, What were you going through? Uh, I thought... Uh, I, 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 I have an artistic impulse as opposed to an activist impulse, but... I trust that if I'm feeling that something artistically is feeling right or whatever, that it's feeling right because it's saying the right thing, like it's saying a moral thing or, or whatever. So, so, so I, I was just feeling like this was had really good energy to it. This right. this thing I'd done with Ray Martin and, and and so on a creative level, I was like, oh, this this is like really interesting, and and this was like before. You know the Chaser and Sasha Baron Cohen, and I hadn't seen Michael Moore, so so it was like this weird thing where I, I couldn't even quite figure out what this sort of, you know, what the precedent was or something. Right. And, and but there had been precedents, obviously. There'd been like everything from candid camera to uh, a yippies in the nineteen sixties who did these kind of social activist pranks, and so I guess that, that was sort of like the precedent. But yeah, it, it felt like it felt like really good energy creatively, and so. They kind of it, it killed it, and then in a time before YouTube and viral hits, it, it people started taping it onto right. like someone at the ABC clearly had dubbed the copy and passed it on around on VHS, and it became there were two things in the world at that time that were doing this: it was the Pamela Anderson sex tape and the Ray Martin fight, right? And then it started this bubbling up all across Australia. Well, I remember seeing it, yeah, in that format. You know, I, I remember being past the tape, you know? Yeah. And I walked I mean, past eventually, the... uh, uh, basically, you started Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> and I was walking past a poll at, outside RMIT, this university in Melbourne, and, and there was this poll, and, and it had um, Socialist Alliance or something uh, presents a film night on the media, and they were, were going to play this tape at their film. I was, and, it got out of, and ABC didn't know what to do because, they, I mean, they're still just such arrogant assholes but even then they're arrogant assholes because 
you could kill things back then. Uh-huh. Like now they'd probably think, how can you bury anything? But they, yeah, they basically, they buried it and like slandered, you know, like, like they, 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 in, instead of just coughing up and just I kind mean, of going, it is, it's insane yeah. when you think about like in the light of particularly in what people do today. Yeah. With the point you were making mm. and what you were doing. Yeah. Like maybe it could have been a scandal for a day and maybe like the Australian and the right wing press could have beaten up on you for six months as yeah. until, you know, the chaser did something or someone else did something yeah. and they can that can be the person for that six months. Oh, Kate Blanchett made a yeah. speech at a funeral. Okay, cool. John Safran, you got three months out of the press, <laughs> you know, like but yeah, the, but, the idea that the ABC, this this organisation, and an organisation that I've worked for for fifteen years on and off, you know, yeah. um, and is would not stand up for the principle of that. Yeah, it's against everything that they should stand for. It is embarrassing. It's disgraceful. That's the thing that the right wing press and the Australians should be beating them up for. They should have been beating them up for not standing by it. Yes. like a valid piece of like you know, media and social criticism like that, where you didn't actually... Like, it's not like you framed him for being a pedophile or anything like that. You literally were making a comedic execution of a very valid point of a current news story. It's an embarrassment to Ray Martin and it's an embarrassment (laughs) to the ABC. But I guess, like, even even for Ray, it was before that time. Like, I don't think Ray Martin or the equivalent of Ray Martin would behave like that it's like you know when the politicians started to ruin the chaser by being too into it yeah like because the minute they're too into it you're like oh well this is ruined now the and but i actually enjoyed it at the time because when it started bubbling up and became viral i was like oh this is actually cool uh and and because it it was sort of like the environment i'd grown up in in this kind of countercultural environment where i loved like public radio and i loved zines and all this it kind of seemed to fit into that world for me so i was like oh this is this is actually really cool that yeah. it's sort of so, gone viral on vhs i said so tell then, me no i want to linger on that yes. moment if i can and we can get back I, this is you know we'll take our time but th- th- that cool thing i think it's just I, I do want to ask you about that because i know because before i met you and knew you uh, i was a fan of yours uh me and my friend lindell my, my friend lindell and i uh, had uh watch race around the world we were big doug anthony all-stars fans which and i guess this is kind of the point i want to make with this podcast is like often things are connected you know i started watching the big gig and i got into the Doug anthony all-stars and we followed richard feidler to race around the world and we saw you there and then we followed you from there to like you know the other things that you were doing before i got to meet you and know you and we were both really big fans of yours and i remember at the time, just thinking, this guy's about as cool as it fucking gets right now. Yeah, I mean, like, so did you have a sense of, like, at least sometimes in the middle of it going, you know what, this is pretty fucking cool? Oh, yeah, no, I thought <laughs> I thought I wasn't really that angry at the time because yeah. of the combination of maybe they were telling the truth. Like, because like, they didn't say that they came up with this thing where they said, oh, listen, we just don't think the quality of the overall show is any good. It has got nothing to do with the Ray Martin thing. So they kind of like cornered me, like, what am I going to say without right. sounding like a wanker? Like, because perhaps it's true or whatever. So the combination of that and also me kind of finding it really cool that it was going viral or whatever. So I, I didn't mind that. But then it was only like years later. So I actually kind of didn't mind it at the time. And then especially when I started doing other things that were working, it was kind of like, you know, in the overall you know, opus of your work to have this one thing that was like buried, but then became, it's kind of like a cool little chapter in it or whatever. But it was only years later that I thought, you know what? It was absolutely just this unique situation that the ABC just being a-holes worked for me. Like it was just incidental that 
them being the overbearing right. kind of overlords and shut, trying to shut me down because of my character or pers- persona and because of the style of it, it kind of fitted in perfectly. It was like accidentally fed the brand or the marketing of me or whatever. But for anyone else, it would have just been they were just total a-holes. Right. And so I, and I, was, I was thinking I'm not going to like let them like, you know, it, that, that, that just should be on the record because it's absolutely just absolutely incidental that them being total jerks to me because what they do right, and is just, they sent me, to give you an idea what jerks they were, they sent me legal letters and I got advice from the ABC that I wasn't allowed to comment on this. I mean, that's, uh, and then at the same time they went out to the media and like just slammed me. And, and so I was all... Yes, there's a what yeah, an absolute I, jerk moment. I'll, I will t- tell you a good example of that. The, yeah. the guy who runs the ABC, Mark Scott, who seems to be doing a good enough job trying to defend it. I don't know. Uh, it's not my business. I don't like. I don't technically work for the ABC. Yeah, I haven't technically worked for the ABC for a decade. Yeah, yeah. When I was at Triple J, I worked for the ABC, but since then, I've always just worked for TV shows that you know yeah. play on the ABC, and. But I have never spoken to Mark Scott, even though we have had the number one show on his late network. Right. Like, we haven't spoken because when he first came in, they were cancelling my old show, The Glass House. And they told me I wasn't allowed to speak in the press. And then he went out in the press and said that, like, you know, the trouble, like, because people were getting angry about it being cancelled. Like, the most complaints the ABC has ever had, yeah. even more than that infamous chaser sketch Julian yeah. Morrow told me, is when our show got cancelled. So people were angry at the time. And. I um, and then I was just like, no, fuck him. He can't. Like, I'm a, I'm an adult human being. I can say what I fucking want. No one can tell me what to say. Yeah. Like the minute someone's trying to say you can't say that, no, fuck that. You should be defending my right. And people can believe me or not believe me. Yeah. And you can put your argument forward, and I'll put my point of view forward, and people can make up their own mind. Yeah. Fine, but. To tell me that I can't speak about it, it's fucking outrageous. I think I think the thing in that case is that it's really annoying because they don't want to. If if they want to market them or position themselves as that, fine. Just position yourself as this monolithic overlords of the Australian right. media who tells people to shut up. But you can't tell you to shut up and me to shut up and do all this thing behind and then still like present yourself as loving and like the good guys. Right. But they're not. They they sent they sent a legal letter. I I, I went on community radio where uh, after the Ray Martin thing, where they surprised me on the community radio by playing the audio of the Ray Martin footage, and the ABC sent legal letters to me, like threatening me for and threatening the community radio station for 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 them playing the audio. And so, so that's that's how hardcore they were. Yeah. And well, the, let's hope that they're not like that anymore. Because I still wear this. <laughs> I should be a bit nicer. No, no. I mean, it's. I think this is a perfectly legit, legitimate conversation to have, but it's a conversation that people are afraid to have. I think sometimes because we're so opposed on things like public broadcasting in Australia that people can't make legitimate criticisms at the yeah. ABC. It's like this thing of like, I think these current cuts are hurting all the wrong people. Yes, there are probably places where the ABC could be doing a lot better job than what they're doing, but we can't have a legitimate conversation about that because everything's so split along ideological lines and they're fighting a war instead of actually looking at it and trying to improve it for everybody's sake. I I think things can be two things at once. So I I think it's, yeah, it's true you can stand up for the ABC, but they are, like, it is, it's the only game in town. Mm. It is a cultural monolith. So, So they should be poked at and and, right. and discussed and you know criticized yeah no i absolutely agree with that yeah. and i think that 
I, it's one of these things that I, I always, I, and I'd like to get your opinion on this. When it comes to politics, are you a person who would publicly identify, you know, your political point of view? Do you have a political, like, you know, would you, if, if I said to you, you know, how, how would you identify politically? Would you want to answer that? Do you have an answer for that? Has your answer to that changed over your life? Uh no, I wouldn't want to answer it, but not 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 because I have some big da da no. thing like oh you'll be so surprised because behind the scenes I'm actually actually <laughs> passionately this or that. Right. It, the reason it, I hang out with all those racists is yes. actually because I'm really racist, and when I'm pretending for yes. those two days for documentary footage, it's the only time I feel alive. <laughs> yeah, but but I. <laughs> I, I just, I also feel like in the context of Australia, that's always like, well, are you... That's you a know, good movie plot, by the way. It's what? like your Cosby moment. You know, because it's turned out that Bill Cosby, instead of being the most beloved entertainer of our generation, is probably one of the most horrible serial rapists of all time. Yes. Yeah, you could do a thing about a guy I who's... I wish I didn't say yes then, saying I don't really know the facts <laughs> of the case. Sorry. Allegedly. 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 Uh, but... Uh, I did say it seems. I didn't. I didn't say. You know, this is not a legal podcast. It'll be fine. Uh, otherwise, we can be the first podcast to be sued, and that'll get us in the press, and that'll be good for the numbers. So anyway, um, it'd be about a guy. You could do a great movie about a guy who did your job, but yep. he's actually is like not pretending when he's with them. He's pre- only pretending to be a good guy to make documentaries in his real life. Yeah, but he's sure. actually just a terrible person. And yeah, he's and I've been, I've been caught to- in the in in the clanhood in a non shtick situation right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway that was not the point i got sidetracked um but i reckon it's a combo of things one thing is that i managed to get into little worlds in australia and around the world and part of that is because people within those worlds uh say oh john you you, you don't come across as being too ideological like you, you'll give us a fair say whether that and I, I hear that from all sides so I kind of don't want to damage that. No, no, no. And and also, I just don't think, like, what do I know? I I have this thing where issues, if they're in, like, the mainstream and everyone's talking about them, I think, what am I bringing to the table? Like, I don't feel, like, guilty, like, oh, my God, if I don't talk about the environment... You know, like, okay. like so, every, everyone's just, not everyone, but other people are just way, way, way more informed. And it's a topic that's discussed so much by people more informed than me. So I'll just go off in my own little world and try to poke around at something that's not discussed as much. Well, funnily enough, that's kind of the, I think probably the answer I would give, like a, a very similar sort of answer. And this is why, and that, this is why I brought up the point in the first place is that I think that most of us are much more nuanced than identifying with a certain, like, you know, like following politics, like it's football yeah. and identifying with the team. Like what's, what's important to me is not going to be important to you and vice versa. And this idea of, okay, well, this debate is interesting to me, and but this one isn't, or I'm more concerned about my family than I am about the environment or whatever, are very personal decisions. And so when we start to label things, and the, yeah, the ABC starts to be left versus right instead of people just going, well, what do... Do I care about the ABC and do I think I'm getting value out of it? And do I... Instead of it being an ideological debate, I think it's... I mean, I think those labels are, are very unhelpful and we and, become and increasingly aware of... I think there's so much of, to discuss that's not within... That divide, like right. I've just finished reading an uh, advanced copy of John Ronson's new book, uh-huh. and he's the guy who wrote the men who scared, stared at goats and the psychopath test, and well, and, and them. And, and anyway, the, the new one is, and uh, and it's not coming out to next year, but it's about public shaming 
And it's about and the sort of the spine of it is looking at these people who've been destroyed because they've said something kind of clunky on Twitter. And then it's the most and the mob goes after them. And anyway, this book kind of like looks at that phenomena. And one of the examples is this uh, woman who's kind of been attacked. Like when you think about it, it goes, oh, the kind of people who've attacked her have been kind of progressives because she said something that was interpreted as racist. And then, but the other uh, other girl he discusses and looks through her stories, this woman who did something that was interpreted as offensive to the military. So she was kind of like attacked by conservatives for that. And anyway, but the book, just the way he's written it, it's almost like it doesn't really occur to you that much that it's like, oh, in this case, it's the progressives who were the mob. In that case, it was the conservatives. Because he's trying to make this bigger point and tell this really important story about public shaming in 2014, where he's comparing it to shaming in the past with people putting the stocks and fruits. Well, that's what fruits it feels like, though. And because and, and John Ronson like, did, doesn't approach that book from, oh, I'm left-wing or I'm right-wing, he can tell this incredible, interesting, nuanced story that's, and a discussion that so needs to be had. So I kind of like feel like I'm, I'm John Ronson-y like that. I, I kind of want to talk about things that aren't talked about that don't fit into that divide. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. That was a good answer. Okay, th- that brings me, because we're going to flip around, but I want to talk about what you're doing right now. Or the reason that, you know, you're in LA at the moment, and yeah. I came, I saw, uh, went and watched you do a little uh, talk at Book, book Soup. That's such uh, a good bookshop. Oh, my God. I, I was so excited because... Every time I've come to Los Angeles, I've kind of somehow ended up there. It's almost like a, like just walking the streets, and it's such a great bookshop. And then I knew I was doing a book event here, but I didn't connect the dots. I didn't know that was called Book Soup. And then when I got there last night, like I turned up, and it was like, oh, my God, I'm getting to talk at this gorgeous It's an bookshop. amazing place. Like I, I, It's just down the road from where I live, and so I often pop up there, and they do the – yeah, you can see authors t- speak all the time. You know, and I've seen lots of great com- comedic authors, like Judd Apatow did a speech about some short stories that he collected, and uh, Patton Oswalt did a great one there. But, like, you know, great authors coming through all the time as well. And um, But b- because of your book – now, I, I imagine some of the people who are listening to this will have already heard of your book, but for those who haven't, what is it called? It's had well, two names. It's got two names. It was released in Australia in 2013 under the title Murder in Mississippi, and that's what it was released at in Britain as well. But uh, just last week it was released in America, and they've, it's titled here, God'll Cut You Down. <laughs> They're just like it just needs a little bit more. Yeah. Why was why did they go with God will cut you down rather than murder in Mississippi? I kind of I, I really like the the name, but it was mainly because I think to to foreign ears to Australian ears it's it's very evocative those words like murder and Mississippi it's so vivid and colourful and. But I think if you're in America and you kind of hear the word Mississippi a bit more often, right. suddenly it's and also, a yeah, bit plain. I, I think you also hear the word murder a bit more often. Yeah. You probably hear murder in Mississippi yeah. every second night on the news. <laughs> so you're like, yeah. Right, another one? Yeah, is this from the Murder in Mississippi super series? Yeah, I've got one through 17. I think if you had like like murder in Chadston, <laughs> uh, like to Paris ears or to LA ears, it would sound like really, oh, what's this mysterious Chadston place? But if you were to release it in Melbourne, everyone would be like, oh, why do you call it murder in Chadston? So I think, I think it was that sort of thing. But, uh, and, and so what, what the story is about, it all started with a prank I did for a television series called Race Relations, and I'd gone to, I went to Mississippi uh, to meet up with his white supremacist. And, and it was just like incidental. It happened to be this guy. We just sent out emails to a dozen clan types and he's the one who got back to us. And uh, 
he anyway so i went over there and i procured a saliva sample from him in a very uh sneaky way and then you know there was a bit of television magic but like i went to a dna testing facility with the with the saliva sample and got it tested and uh, in effect all of us if you kind of dig hard enough into a DNA sample, all, all of us, are, you know, you will have messy things and you won't be as racially pure as you think. Anyway, so I return to this uh, white supremacist, uh, a meeting he's holding, and I get up on the, at the podium and I say, I say, oh, Richard, his name was Richard Barrett. I go, oh, this is a bit awkward, but earlier on I procured a saliva sample off you and I took it to a DNA testing facility. The results are in. And there's no easy way to put this, but you have um, African D- DNA. You're part African. And anyway, the room's all like, <laughs> like that. They, they don't know what's going on. And I say, oh, listen, don't worry. It's not like you're black, black. It's more like you're white and a bit black, like Barack Obama. And then, like, we just scoot out of there, right? And so we've, we've done this prank. And then he started immediate legal action against uh, the, the ABC. And so the, and. The ABC just wouldn't put it to air, so that was that. It was like the end of it. And then a year later, that guy who I'd spent... Because I ended up spending two days with him because for the sake of getting the prank, I had to fake that we were filming a serious documentary and for like one and a half days. And then the easiest way to fake you're filming a documentaries to film a documentary so right. we, did, we, we just followed him around in his world and we just knew none of this stuff was ever going to be in the final prank story but right. he, he was like a really interesting guy and he was talking about things i was interested in so i just <laughs> ended, so i ended up this fake documentary just ended up being sort of you know inter- whatever but we we didn't think about it because we had so, so much footage to cut that we couldn't like indulge ourselves by watching all this footage anyway a year later this dude He's murdered. He's found dead in his house in Mississippi uh, in a pool of blood, and a young black guy has been arrested. So I'm like, holy hell, and I was like really thrown off because, you know, even though he was held horrific views, Richard Barrett, it was still like, it's just very strange to think that someone you spent time with has just been murdered. Right, and how did you find out? Because I was goofing around on the internet and just (laughs) under the websites I visit. Like, yeah, I'm always... Yeah, my, so I'm aware, I, I, you know, in, in the book I talk about how I'm like spooling through Scientology tweets and downloading conspiracy theory podcasts and uh, watching exorcisms on YouTube. That's a kind of online world I right. engage in. And so, yeah, I just saw it on a white supremacist site. It just said Richard Barrett murdered and he hired black help. What was he thinking? Something along those lines. And And anyway, so then the story started coming out that perhaps that the first thing that the young black guy called Vincent McGee said to the investigators when he was caught was that uh, Richard Barrett, the white supremacist, had sexually attacked him and he had to fight him off and one thing led to another and it ended up with a knife in his neck. So I was... Anyway, I I didn't actually initially, like, I didn't put it to one side. Like, I wasn't like, oh, cool. How How do I... Where were you at in your life at that point? Like, describe, you know, what what were you doing? Where were you working? What, you know, what, like, where was life at? I, I was trying to get things up with the ABC and um, it, 
everything I've done in my line of work has generally been like self-generated. It's not like you get all these phone calls all the time. Oh my, my God, I've got too many phone calls. It's usually me coming up with an idea and then kind of like pushing it and pushing it until someone wants it. So I, I, I was just going through that stage where, uh, you know, I was just doing a lot of ideas and hoping at some point someone, the ABC or whatever, or someone would come, uh, respond and and your state of mind at a time like that like just you know it's just interesting to me like are you positive is that a positive time is it a time where you start to have fears about like paying your bills or anything like that or it's usually it can be positive if there's hope i usually if i think there's hope i'm i'm usually uh that, that keeps me going regardless of what's going on at that moment whilst if i don't think there's hope in the future then even if something's going really cool at the moment, I'm still worried. So I'm like way more worried, just say, when John Saffron versus God was on TV and it's getting to the closing weeks, I'm like freaking out. Even though like I'm getting all this great feedback, I'm like, what, what, but I don't know what I'm doing next. I don't know what I'm doing next. Well, so I can be in a bit of a, like, like for instance, the, the fact that I knew the book was coming out in America now, like that, that's kind of kept me kind of quite bubbly right. bubbly for the year and even though it's like oh well hang on what am i going to what else am i going to do and all that stuff? i often like to say to people one of my favorite things uh it, like is having a tv show yeah not doing a tv show mm. doing a tv show is really hard yes i like when they go hey we're you know we just agreed to do like gruen yeah and we're doing it again in the second half of 2015 yeah. that's like the best present anyone could ever buy me because yeah. that means at least until then <laughs> yeah. i feel like things are going okay yes definitely like, once we start doing it I might completely fuck it up and ruin everything, but like at least until it's like a free pass mm. until like August. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, I'm still, I still have a career until August. This is, <laughs> this is okay. This is cool. Um, do you, what's your work day like, or how do you generate ideas when you're in that space, when you're in a creative space? Like, I'm about to go into a, a, like a space where, well, I mean, most of this year, to be honest, has been me in my own time, general, you know, yeah, because, but. I'm about to really put together two new shows and so I need to be in a writing space. Yeah. Are you a person who goes out and does things? Is it just trolling websites? Do you get up early? Do you do oh, a well, couple of hours a day? Do you like... Oh, well, the one of the... I've got this advantage of sometimes I'm really late with work due. Mm-hmm. So what that, what that means is there's always something on because, <laughs> because, right. I, because I haven't done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so for this year, for instance, I've been writing feature articles for this magazine in, in Australia where I've like gone into like small country towns and looked at a couple of murders and a few other things hanging out at a white nationalist rally you know typical saffron shtick you know i i hung out recently my, my latest story which i've just put in and back and forth with the editor is i spent time with this aussie jihadist preacher is how he's described by the press and he was a convert and he was in uh the Philippines, and he got deported, and his passport was taken away. So he he has to live at home with his mum now, and you know his his family aren't Muslim or whatever; they're just like white Aussies. And uh, yeah, so, so I, I spent some time with him, and uh, anyway, so but but basically, I'm just I'm either procrastinating or I'm finishing the work. So yeah, so my work day would be um, you know hunting down these ideas and making phone calls and turning up and. You know, doing the interviews and then transcribing and then writing. So the, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to do. It's a bit. This is a bit of a sharp turn, but I I just thought of it while you were talking about all these people that you spend this time with. Mm. Has there been someone uh, over the years where you're like, I I I really did not like this person, but I feel like I learnt 
a couple of really interesting things from them? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, just with God Will Cut You Down and Murder in Mississippi, I, I, both Richard Barrett, the white supremacist, and Vincent McGee, the murderer, had unpleasant sides to them. But you learn a lot. Usually, usually the thing that kind of shocks me these days is because I go into these worlds and I'm kind of like prepared for people to be like really offensive on a like a racial or a ethnic level. Like what? Why? It's, so it's not like, oh my God, I, I, I turned, I knocked on the door of this Klansman and he said something anti-Semitic. Right. You know, like, <laughs> like, like I'm totally prepared for that, but it's usually yeah. when it's something outside that circle, when they say something either just offensive or they do something awful and, and I become like a regular person right. who's like really thrown. And so, so in, the, in the case of like Vincent McGee, the, the young black guy, when I started hearing about the, the story of abuse in his life that sort of doesn't, isn't really to do with being black or white or whatever, like, and, and the abuse that he'd both suffered and also that he'd, he'd met it out on other people, and I was just so out of my comfort zone and just so distraught. I was like, I was like a normal, it was almost like, oh my god, had I known I was going to end up having these conversations, like if this was just, if I knew at the start, I pro- I don't know, I'd come, I would have come over here. How how have you coped with that? Like, do you feel like you have ways that you like because you, t- as you said, you're, you're often surrounded by a lot of like you know people with you know. Like yeah, you know, energies or you know, sharing information with you or being around situations that the rest of us would find like I would find one of those confronting. Yeah. Let alone you know being around those people and in that world and alone and scared. Like I asked you a question at your book thing last night of just like, did you tell your family and friends you were going? Because I was like, mine wouldn't let me. You said <laughs> you said to me, go, I'm an adult. I'm an adult. I said I'm but, a grown up. Right, you're a grown I'm up. I'm allowed to go to Mississippi. Right, I'm but I'm not up. sure that my friends would let me. I yeah. think they would think it was too dangerous for me to be, and I think it would be too dangerous for me to for me to be around that many dangerous people all that time. I don't think I'm strong enough to handle that. What is it about you either that makes you interested in that or be what is your technique of coping with that when you're around it? Oh, so I, I guess like one level is it's it's highly stimulating mentally. Okay. So... That's that's a bit of the trade-off where you get to talk to people that are just so different to your world, in, in my case, in Balaclava in Melbourne. And so that's just, you, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening uh, are like, well, you know, such an important part of my life or what I'd like to be an important part of my life is having a job where, you, you know, it's sort of, it's stimulating. So, so this definitely ticks that box. And then the way I cope with it, I guess there's at least two things. One is... It's a, it's a bit like if you're going over the speed limit and whilst you're driving, you're not really thinking, oh, oh, oh this is going to be the time where you have a car crash and end up as a quadriplegic for the rest of your life. You just think this time's going to be okay. Like you don't even think about it. And so there's a bit of that where once you actually get into the moment and you kind of go into these little worlds, you just think this time's going to be okay. You know, like when when you go through the forest and cold cold call knocking on the door of the clansman and he opens the door you just think this isn't going to be the time where i get lynched from a tree it should be okay then on top of that what, what one of the things that really keeps me going is I, I go to the point of no return 
where and that, that that's two things like that's 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 like why when I write things I like just going into the little town whether it's in Australia or Mississippi because you'd knock on the door and then you're at the, you're at the point of no return you can't what are you going to do now right and so so there's, so there's that <laughs> plus usually. There's some other dynamic going on. Well, that, I mean, that comes back to the sky's not going to fall in, yes. though, right? That's your attitude of going, all right. I, and there is something that about, I think if you've never made a mistake or if you've never like, been in a situation, I always say it to comedians, like particularly when you're first starting, do as many gigs as you can. doesn't matter if they're terrible. Yeah. Because you've got to do terrible gigs at some stage. Like if you do this for long enough, you'll do terrible gigs. Yeah. So you might as well learn how to do them <laughs> and realise that they don't really matter as soon as possible. And yeah. then you'll be able to actually get on with your job. And it may take years, but you've got to get to that point where you realise the sky won't fall in if I take a risk or if I fail. And if I fail, I can get back up again and I can do it again. So obviously in your head, you've got to that point at least a little bit in your approach to these things. Yeah, for sure. And, and and the other dynamic that's going on that's kind of invisible, I guess, to the reader of the book or the the watcher of my documentaries is that it's taken like a, a long time to kind of get all the pieces together for this. And there's someone who's backed you, like either at the ABC or at the publishing company. And, you know, and, you know, they've even given you a check. And and so, but it's not it's not entirely that, but it's like I just feel this great shame. Like I, I just can't return. I, I can't imagine after like Penguin backed me of me like not handing in a manuscript or not coming up with a story. I'd just be too ashamed. Right. And and the same with uh, doing a documentary. I'd just be too ashamed to like come back and have to talk to my my green you know my producer at the ABC who back and just go. Oh, yeah, well, you're going to have to come up with something because, like, we don't have any footage no, or no, whatever. No. So <laughs> they were really scary. Yeah, and, and it's like, and, and here's it, me it, eating the minibar. And shame is everyone always thinks shame's a bad thing, but in some ways, it's a real driver. I'm, I'm filled with a lot of self hatred because where I'm does a, that I, come from? I'm a, I don't know. I just guess brought up and just my dad. Like, you know, education was important, and I, and I was. I'm a combination of being lazy and a workaholic somehow at the same time. Uh-huh. So that that means I kind of like procrastinate, but I'm filled with so much self-loathing that I'm always thinking, I'm always writing and I'm so angry. I'm like, oh my God, if I hadn't procrastinated, this would be over by now. And like, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I mean, I'm imba- like I was talking about writing for this magazine and I've got an e- editor there, Ben, and I'm just, I'm so embarrassed that when I'm late for work and it just keeps me driving. So it just means I get things in late, but I eventually, I actually, like unlike most creative people, I, I do get it done. And so... And do, does that uh, have a destructive side to it as well, though? Like, I mean, obviously the process-driven, you know, it gets mm. you to do what you're able to do. But is there an element of th- that attitude of like self-hatred or whatever that you think is negative? Or is it just you're fine with it in that sort of... Well, it's, a, it, it's so hard to work out how to get the balance right. Because, for instance, you kind of have to be lazy for a while to kind of process what's going on. So right. it's, you're not actually being lazy. You, you just sort of... Oh my god! I was just thrown into this weird world. Like, like I spent five days recently in Redfern in Sydney because this poster had gone up, and someone sent me a photo that they'd taken of it, and it was in Redfern. And this poster had gone up, and it said uh, uh, "Redfern for uh, the Aboriginal Mob, Asians out of Redfern." It's like what the hell? What? Yeah, it was like so crazy. So, so I, I went there and kind of spent five days trying to get to the bottom of this yeah. poster and what it meant and whether some outside racist had put it on to start trouble or 
but there was this thing going on there where international students, Asian international students were going to be set up in housing there. So maybe there was like this renegade Aboriginal person. Anyway, so I spent, and, and you can imagine like I'd never thought about this issue before and, right. and just getting to the bottom of it, getting my head around this whole thing. And I spent five mad days where I'm like talking to people at the, the gym and then I find out that there's a Tongan community you know, within the Aboriginal community and they don't necessarily get, and it's just like, it's insanely stimulating, but so confusing. And, and so when it, when I kind of come out of that, I guess you kind of have to spend some time, uh-huh. like it's not as simple as I'm lazy because I should start punching it out on the keyboard straight away. You just, you do have to meditate on it like a, a Cohen. Yeah. I, I often feel like when you're doing creative things that a lot of the time, because you never know what, your next thing's going to be. Yeah. And when it arrives, you've got to be ready to go. It's very hard to get up to speed on something. So basically your whole life, I always think of it as just, I'm just topping up. I'm trying to fill my brain with like influences and inspirations and be across enough things in the areas that I want to be across that if I go on morning radio and someone throws me a question about something, I at least have a go-to or a funny or like an idea or an attitude or whatever or something in my brain that I can access, you know, because you never know where... what specific thing you're going to need. You just kind of have to top yourself up. And sometimes that's life things as well. Sometimes you can spend, like I've had a big year on the road and the thing I feel like I'm, like I'm going to try to take some time in the next month or so to just do some shit. I don't know what, like nothing with purpose, just some (laughs) shit, you know, because I feel like that's actually what I've missed out. Like it's something that I'm not, I'm not taking in the full influences to, you know, be able to talk about what I want to talk about. For sure. The, do you know, I was thinking, this is a tip I, I, I learned about procrastination where it's like positive, not positive, but right. gl- the, the best way to do it is like when I wasn't writing my true crime book and feeling like really bad, what I'd do is I'd read books. Yeah. So my pre- so, so I'm kind of feeling guilty because I'm not writing my book, but, but I am like learning all, the, I'm soaking up like the methods that these other writers use to write. So I think... Well, I don't know how it applies to whatever people's thing is, but make what you procrastinate something that's going to help right. what you're procrastinating but also, from. But also, even like I'm, I'm more on a – okay, here's what I would like to say. I, I, own your moment. If you choose to do something, then the worst thing you can do is then burden that moment with guilt or shame or those things that like – you know, if you're going, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to watch a movie. Then just – don't then sit on the couch and go, oh, God, I'm guilty. I should be doing – watch the movie and enjoy the moment and then get up and do the rest of the thing. Whatever you do, be in the moment. Don't waste time. If you choose to go, I'm today going to play video games for five hours because it's Saturday and that's what I'm doing, then yeah. do it. But don't, you know, like waste your life playing video games, if yeah. you know what I mean. Like, and, and I think there's like a difference between active in that moment. And absolutely, when you're reading books – I mean, the first thing you would tell someone who's going to write a book is read as many books as you can. Like, that is study for what you're doing. I reckon I also have this subconscious thing that when I'm doing something else, I'm kind of thinking this might be helpful. Like, right. like, like yeah. I, I, it's like it's a weird thing because I don't consciously think it, but that I, I, it's, it's almost like after the fact, I look back at it and go, well, the reason I kind of pursued that and da 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 is because somewhere in my head I thought this is going to be helpful for storytelling in some way or I'm going to learn this in some way and then there's like other things where like like to say even like a book where I'm reading it and I'm sort of going for whatever reason this isn't going to be helpful for teaching me something then like 
I find it hard to keep on going ahead. Um, I want to ask you about something that you talked about last night, which is the structure of how you recorded the book. You know, uh, when you first went there and your writing process as opposed to the second half of it. And I'll let you tell that story. Yeah, for sure. Because, Because I'd never written a book before. And I hadn't written a true crime book. Amongst, amongst the books I hadn't written yeah. were, were true crime books, oh, yeah. right? So well, I, I, before I went there, I, I was reading all these true crime books and trying to, like, soak up the architecture of them, like mm. the blueprint on them, because I, I, I had nothing else to go on. So, I was, I, so sort of my logic was I'll soak up how the, these are doing things and then I'll go over the Mississippi and I'll just, like, plonk in my specifics right. into this. And, and they, they sort of are... Blueprints. That's when I started getting positive. That a little positive that even though I didn't know what I was doing, that maybe if I work hard, I'll be able to make this work. Is because I noticed when I'm when I'm watching documentaries or reality TV, I sort of just without thinking about it, I start soaking up how they're doing what they're doing. Sure. In a way that if I watch like a science fiction film or I read a fantasy book, I'm not doing that. Like like if you were to say to me, "Hey, John, go off and write." A science fiction. I just wouldn't know what to do, and I, I just collapse. But but at least like with documentaries, I can. I, I'm kind of like even I'm watching keep, Keeping Up the Kardashians or something. I, I'm going. I'm, I'm soaking up and going. Oh well, that's how they kind of tricked that, or that's how they made the story move forward with that. I've anyway, said, I, I've talked about that uh, previously about my love of Sam Simmons, the comedian, yeah. uh, because. I can relax when I watch him do stand-up comedy because I don't understand it. I just yeah. think it's wonderful and funny. Whereas when normally I, when I go to stand-up, no matter how much I love it these days, yeah. my brain has that thing where – and I'm not sitting there going, I want to see how this is done. Yeah. It just starts going, oh, he's doing that. And I <laughs> yeah. bet this happens and there's, that's going to – and like, oh, that you – know, and, and I'm like – but with Sam, because he is just something else, something yeah. that I don't understand, yeah. I, I can just kind of sit back and, and enjoy it. So I started when, when I started reading true crime books, which I'd never read before. I started the, the reason why I was positive, I was feeling a little positive. I was going, "Oh my god, I can start seeing. I'm seeing the architecture in these things. I'm like, I'm, I'm actually just kind of subconsciously soaking up how they're how they're working. A bit like when I'm watching documentaries. So I was going, "Okay, good, good, good. If I just keep on reading true crime books, I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll be able to sort this out." And then I went over to Mississippi. And I tried to be really efficient and productive at the start. So I'd go and interview the district attorney and I'd tape. And then I'd come home that night and I'd be like, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll type up what that was all about. And it was just, it was really painful. I was getting a knot in my back and I didn't quite know, because at that point, and I didn't know this at the, that point, I didn't even know that I didn't know, was that. You don't really know how you're going to use that district attorney interview until you have your whole adventure and then see how that fits in with the whole adventure. Like, is this some vital thing that goes on for 20 pages or is it just like uh, I pop on in there? And, and, and I didn't even, even know how I was going to, like, present these people as characters. And like, it's, it's like the writing equivalent of I didn't know how I was going to film it. And then it, and it took me ages to work out that the way I was building characters was through curating dialogue and curating how I'm talking to them because then whether people like the book or don't like the book or whatever like the characters seem real like it doesn't seem like oh these aren't real and I I did that from getting it wrong so often and then deciding I'm going to curate conversations between me and them and that's how I'm going to bring the characters up anyway what you're getting at is at the start I tried to be really efficient and be good and sit there every night and writing and it was driving me crazy and then at some point I just got I was so stressed out and I, and I was getting 
fat because I was just eating gobbling junk food full of self-hatred and, and just going off. And I didn't know what I was doing. And then I got lazy. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to, I'll do the next best thing from writing things down. I'll just blurt into my dictaphone, into my Zoom recorder. And I started just like blurting into my dictaphone and filled with sort of hatred that I wasn't writing. I was going, but it's the next best thing. At least I'm doing something. And then for the rest of my trip there, I'd just blurt into the dictaphone when I had something. And then I'd capture everything when I was talking to someone else. Anyway, then when I got back to Melbourne, I started writing it. I realized that, all the lazy blurting was being way more helpful than the writing I'd done at the start. Because when you write at the start, even just the process of putting a pen to paper and writing, you're kind of editing yourself in, a, in this sort of uninteresting, self-interested way. And let me explain what I mean by that, because that sounds a bit confusing, is that to give you an example, at the very start of the book, or the very start of me landing in Mississippi, I didn't know I was ever going to meet the killer. And so at the start, I was editing myself in my head, so I never made it to paper, to try to work out a logic that it doesn't matter that I'm never going to meet the killer. So, cause then I, and so I just I took it out of my head. So therefore, I never captured these moments of me having doubt and then, oh, my God, which in retrospect would have been so interesting, and, and especially because they're – and I didn't know it at the time – there's the payoff – I eventually did get to, you know, communicate a lot with the killer and form a relationship with him. So it would have been it would have been so great if I had all these moments of doubt and doubt and doubt and doubt and then ping. But I never did because I edited it out. So, but if I would have done the lazy thing from the start and not just just not given a shit, I, I would have captured all that. Like, oh my god, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like the book's fucked. The book's fucked. Right. <laughs> and I, I I think that's less the lazy. And this is kind of what I want to get to. So this is lovely because it's about so many different things. And one of them is about this idea now of uh, here's the thing. This is a theme that it's been I've been talking about a lot. But like the idea that life is not a documentary. It goes back to that idea of left versus right or black versus white. It, it's stupid for us to look at the world like that because life is not a documentary. Everything doesn't just happen, and it's unequivocal what happened. Yeah. Life is a collection of stories and memories that we weave together with our spin and narrative to, you know, tell our story. And we have some control over that. And this is a classic example of you literally determining your point of view rather than being in the moment. And I think this is what we do a lot is we, we get out of the moment and we start, you know, inventing those things that are going to go badly or we start thinking that we're better than we are or that we're different than we are rather than being, this is who I am right now. Everything that I am to this point is me now. Let's play this out, this moment right now. And then later on when I need to reflect, you know, I've taped it and I can collect it and that will be my version of this story. Because even what you've done with the book is, this is your story of this story. Yeah, sure. And it's a story that within itself has a lot of unanswered questions. And some of them, you know, as the reader, you're like, well, these are these questions unanswered because John won't answer them for us and he does know or it's because the, the, no one knows or they will never be answered or would have a better journalist gone to town <laughs> and, you know, found them all out or, you know, is this how, you know, I mean... And it's not their life. You're not going to do another one. We like, and yeah, here's the rest of it. And you're not telling everything that went before. It's just a story, a snapshot. Yeah. And that's, I, mean, I just think in a broader sense, that's a really interesting idea. As a narrative for your own life, how do you think that you see your life? Do you have a, like, 
do you have a specific meaning? Do you like? Do you think that you know? Do you have spiritual beliefs that guide you? Is there something within you that you think you know what life is about? Uh, I think I touched on this before. Unless you touched on it before you hit record, but I, I trust. I'm, I'm just. I, I really. I trust my artistic impulses. Yeah, and that there's. But, I, I, but that, that I want to do that because of some particular uh, reason for the journey, even though if I can't quite describe it or, or for some particular spiritual reason or or whatever or activist reason or whatever. So, But where do you I, think I, that I, comes I kind of, from? I, like, I kind that's of, what I want to know. Where, kind of, where do you think that drive in you to do those things? Like what? what does – where does it come from? Like is it – just you being a, a conscious human being evolved and our brains and you're part of society and you've chosen this to be the way that you earn your living or do you feel like there's something, you know, sort of different that drives you? I don't really uh, know what I'm saying, but do you, uh, do you know what I'm saying? I, I, I think <coughs> the way I can answer that, at least one way, is I, I think before, w- when you're really young, you go through these experiences without thinking about them and then like the horse has bolted it's too late uh-huh. that it's sort of like right. w- it's like within you so when i was really young i was like thrown into all these weird kind of cultural things probably different from like a white aussie being in in, in australia well like for instance i was you know i was thrown into this uh, like sunday school where i'm learning all these weird things about god and the jewish religion and then so it's like oh well this is strange <laughs> and and then on top of that my my parents weren't that religious, so what what does that mean that they're throwing me in this this world? But they don't seem to be religious, but they're Jewish or whatever. And then I I was thrown into this ultra religious Jewish school where I was the least religious kid at this. And anyway, I I, start, I just started being thrown into these weird kind of nuanced worlds within worlds uh, of to do with like culture, and and it just stimulated me. It was like looking at and looking at all these unexpected kind of fault lines and the unexpected ways that people act and the way that people that look like total lunatics to the outside world can be very normal if you're actually within that world. So so I just became yeah, I just became interested in, in that kind of the world of I, I guess I I became interested in things that look one way if you're only there for a moment and then when you're deeper and deeper because you're there for longer, you you find out that 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 little world is actually totally different to how you you, you see it if you're um, you know you're just cruising by and 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 so I, I guess in a lot of my work I try to do that like I, I try to spend as much time in Mississippi so what's on the surface when I'm there on day one I, I suddenly see that the, the kind of cracks and how it's it's so different by the time you're there for a month and I, I and I just find that that process interesting uh, you've been rounded round death a lot recently like oh, yeah. you know you're i've murdered bodies and yeah stuff. Yes. no but, but i mean you know yeah. around where death has been you know yep. around people who define stories by death yes you know uh is does it make you think about death are you a person who thinks about your death is that something that is you know present in your kind of mind and your existence or is it just something that you would kind of accept as an inevitable part of being i don't know alive? i don't know death but I, I have noticed i've become really interested in uh the point of no return in your in your life's journey like you I, like i've done things until this age and so now i have to somehow deal with the consequences which is kind right. of good or bad like okay. like yeah. Yeah, think and, and the reason I, I made me me yeah like i mean that's a revelation i had in a situation that i may discuss 
like in, in like a different episode at a later time, but in a situation that I went through this year, uh, I had like a, you know, one of those moments where I was like, I, you know, you did this to you. Yes. I made me me for good or for ill. This is me. This is what I am. And I'm fucking 40 now. And so I'm going to have to deal with at least, you know what? Those people are never going to like you. They're done. Like you can't, you can't do anything to win those guys back. (laughs) And you know, those people you burnt those bridges with, that's probably done. And those people that you've shared your life with and your love and they're your friends, they're probably your friends and, you know, enjoy being with the, you know, I mean, I made me me. This yeah, is for me. sure. Right. So you're dealing with that for good or for ill. Yeah, because I noticed, I, I started reading these old crime books, like fiction, not not true crime, but fiction, like and famous ones, you know, like Raymond Chandler, and he wrote about this detective, Philip Mar- Marlowe. Uh-huh. Is that his name, Philip Marlowe? Uh, anyway, whatever the, the detective is. And I was really enjoying all these books in that genre where it's like this gruff detective and... And, 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 and I started reading all these books. I was going, why am I enjoying these so much? And then I realised that in, in all of it, the character is like this man who's done all these things in his life that he now has to – he's only got one chance to break out of them. or well, not one chance, but he has to like he, – he's, he's either like drunk too much or he's gambled too much and, and now he lives in this like little abandoned motel room or whatever and, and he just has to deal – it's like the point of no return. He's going to have to somehow make this final gasp to sort of make his life work out and I, and I just think like in, in some weird way like that's where I'm at and probably where you're at where it's like it's, it's too late. Like we've right. we, – yeah, we, 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 you've kind of got the back – you're back against a wall in some way right. and you're just going to have to like – And like, you know, and even like on a lot of the issues of the world, if you look at the bigger issues, I'm like, I honestly believe that, you know, know, climate change is going to be a problem to this world. Well, I trust the scientists. You know, I I feel like that's probably what's going to happen. But I also probably realize that I'll die before the worst of it happens. Do you know what I mean? Like for me, it's not going to be a specific issue. It'll probably be a bit of an issue, you know, but like you have a I have a context of in the grand scheme of this planet and like you know the universe we're a tiny speck in the an accidental speck in the corner of the universe and we are nothing you know compared to any human who will but you're kind of like well well I fucking wasted half of it here I might as well you know (laughs) this is what it is I guess I'm probably not going to work out how to evolve to a higher plane or whatever I might as well just play this shit out right yeah uh, yeah and I and I do think that yeah once you've gone through real bad things and come out the other side you do realize like what the hell and yeah so i guess that's why i'm not actually scared of the death but i mean it's a bit cocky of me seeing i'm not old enough to ask me again when i'm like 70 yeah maybe i'll be very scared of death then i'm gonna do this like a michael app did uh, yeah. thing it's gonna be like every seven years i'll, <laughs> I'll get you back um so uh, okay uh, we we should finish up in a little bit but i want to uh, ask you a couple more things we you talked last night uh, about how technology changed your life a little bit. The yeah. rise of you know YouTube and things like that. Can you talk to me about that? Oh yeah. So so one interesting thing that happened to my career, like people who've watched me on the ABC, they, they go, oh, John kind of went into these worlds for his show, where especially overseas, where they don't know who he is, and then he kind of did a prank or whatever, and then that was like fine until Google, because right. now now. And I remember some of my early shows that, like, before Google really took off, so there was, like, the internet, but it was, like, you really could have this roll of the dice that, you know, 
nine yeah. times people out didn't of have it on their phone yeah like if you were visiting some hillbilly yeah. in the mountains he yeah. wasn't going to get out his iphone 6 and be yeah. able to google you yes and then and it just reached this point where uh, like people were just always going to know you before you came or you just have to you know they, they're going to type in your name and then that's that so i had to be like wily and kind of go well r- rather than kind of get petulant or bitter or something like that just go well that's sort of the new world so i'm going to have to reconfigure and be lateral and come up with some other version of me or a creative version of me and i i think that's part of the reason i wrote the book in the manner that i that that i wrote it well i wrote a book and in the manner i wrote it was me having to deal with the fact that my creative world from here on in is people are going to have googled me beforehand so I, i can't just do that stuff I've done in the past. Like, it's like, why, why fight it? Why, why not sort of like somehow leverage it to something else? And, uh, yeah, so, I, yeah, you just be a... And, and the other thing is that anyone can... I, my, my work is just so honest now. <laughs> if we, I know that sounds weird, like, like when I'm running these crime stories. And, and part of the reason is, like, the stakes are so high, even on a... Even though I'm a clown and even I get the stakes are really high because it's like around a real tense thing. It's like a murder and all these people being affected. So just on a sort of like a being polite or something, you, you want to be, you know, really honest about it or whatever. But the the other thing is anyone can get online these days and say, well, John's said this happened. John said this happened in the book or John said this happened in the article. But you know what? It wasn't. I was there and da-da-da-da-da. I mean, so, the- so, 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 so I just know anyone in Mississippi or wherever can read my book and or read an article that I do and just say I was there and that that was a bit different to our John so and, and that affects me and that, that it's it's kind of it's it's weird it's like this way of really keeping me in check uh, are you sensitive to criticism on a broad level have you ever been sensitive to criticism i think it kind of one of the main things is whether i think it's being sincere or not you usually I reckon people would be surprised at how, not generous, but if I think a person's being sincere and they're kind of, it's, I'm kind of, I'm way more fine with it than if I think it's just someone throwing shit at the wall, sort of thing. Yeah, or or, or someone who's trying to take me down for some other reason. Right. Or, oh, okay. The, the the only thing that I can re- when you say that that I really think of, that the only time I was like unexpectedly like really, um, kind of blindsided by criticism was I. I did this show, Race Relations, where like this recurring joke in it, it was all about how within the Jewish community that I've grown up in, there's a lot of like pressure to, you know, marry someone who's also also Jewish. And it's just like, it's just true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's not even... <laughs> yeah, and it's like, it's, it's, like, like, it's not like I'm an outsider. And no. it's like, I've been in the Jewish world since birth in so many versions of the jewish world in melbourne it's just like the truth like i i, I am an authority about it but i've, and, and I've I, lived 15 years yeah. in the like two most jewish suburbs in sydney and yeah. i guarantee you it's still true <laughs> yeah so then then i was just totally obviously for like some jewish people it's like the, the weird thing about that is that the a community all communities whether it's the aboriginal community or muslim community or the jewish community they, they want to present themselves as like being modern and progressive and not right. not or whatever and that kind of really kind of bashes against it because it's like well what the hell in 2014 is that still going on and and obviously it's like is that bigotry is that bigotry from the anyway regardless what it was i did a show where that was this recurring kind of joke and theme in it or whatever 
And afterwards, like like some writers in the Jewish press, they try to like psych me out, like make out a bit like when the Scientologists try to make out one of their members is mad or mentally ill. And I just could not believe, I could not believe this thing that was just so absolutely the truth and i am have all the authenticity and authority to comment on it they were trying to like make out because they wanted you know it was like they were a bit worried it'd make the jewish community not look progressive or the melbourne jewish so it's like anyway so uh, i don't know john's got this show on the air and who knows what it's about really and and they tried to make out that all the offense in the show all the transgression had no meaning or had no it was just like oh anyway so john's just doing this wacky stuff and uh, who knows why and i just go screw and i was like that really because i was so blindsided that i could not believe they were playing that card and i and and i and i and, I, and also because i just thought yeah it's it, the i felt like a scientologist who's being or a dissident scientologist is being but also it's shamed it, it, as it, like oh this guy's mentally ill so i was like it really comes back to that, that idea person. of also though that great thing of like what might be right for you may not be right for some which yeah. is like why should they care what your perspective on it is yeah if they believe in it for good or for ill yeah you know or have the discussion yourself yeah. or defend it or don't defend it or just live your life and shut up but why does it matter to them what you you want or you say you know and i i think also the other cool thing about criticism in the modern world like sometimes you get so much feedback and kind of the good side of that is you get a lot of you get a lot more positive feedback than you used to because yeah, that's pe- true. people can easily just tweet you or and people facebook like- message you so so Usually, like, just say there's something in the Herald Sun that's slamming you. That, like, the thing that other people don't know is, oh, for the last for the last years, <laughs> you know, every time you open up uh, Twitter or Facebook, someone someone has sent you a little like positive thing that seems sincere and genuine. Like, oh, you know, your work's really interesting, John, or whatever. So I've kind of got that. Oh like, no, absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing is, in the old days when it was only the letters to the editor or whatever, yeah. it was always negative, basically, because the only people angry enough to go to a post office, yeah. are angry like people who don't like you. Yeah. But somebody never liked you enough to go. You know how much I like him. I'm going to get an envelope. Yeah. And it's a stamp. And I'm going to, like, no one did that. But to send a positive tweet or, a, like, whatever is easy to do. So, yeah. And, and also you can learn things from criticism too. Like, do you know God Will Cut You Down, the American version of the book, that's, uh, that's uh, of murder in Mississippi, is it slightly different? And one of the things that's slightly different about it is I just kind of absorbed some of the criticism. And, oh, and so, when the, so when I yeah. did the new draft, I took some of it on board. I, I, well, that's what I, I, I think. I it's like I always like to try to go, like, is any of this valid? Because even if I hate the person, yeah. I've often on Twitter, I've said this, blocked someone for something but taken the advice on board. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm like, you didn't need to tell me. But yeah. to be honest, that was actually a good point. So I'm going to keep it in my mind. You're and not the, and the other thing about criticism is sometimes people – because people aren't critics so they'll articulate something yeah and they'll like what they're actually saying you can pick it apart and go well that's not true that's not yeah. true or whatever but it, it's more like they're getting at something and and, it, and you have to like deconstruct it a bit and kind of look at it and kind of go well maybe maybe that will help me for the next thing and i, I absolutely criticism has shot my work in, in different directions in really good ways so for instance a, a real big way is that some of my earlier docos were like docos, but with a little bit of twist, so more Louis Theroux. Then when I did race relations, I guess a lot of it was like constructed, was what far more constructed, like as sort of like almost like 
comedy skits but with a bit of doco or whatever. And I, I kind of just felt that people didn't like that as much. They preferred me in the, real, in the, in the world uh-huh. and whatever like that. And so when I went off and wrote uh, Murder in Mississippi, God Will Cut You Down, I like took all that and I said, I'm going to make this a documentary right. as, as opposed to, you know, whatever, like constructed yeah, stick or whatever. you so, as the – I mean, well, to me, because I'm not a true yeah. crime – fan like yeah. it's not my area like but i, I yeah I, I read it because i imagined it was going to be kind of what it was like yeah. you know you in the middle of this story and i'm like well i'm interested in john yeah. oh and there's a joke about my, our manager yeah that's pretty funny i can laugh <laughs> at that and, in a way that not everybody else can because i know it's true and you know but but i guess for other people too coming into that book but it'd be more not more interesting, but what's the reaction been like for people who didn't know you before the book? Because there's got to be those people coming as uh, well now, right? I, I think there's there's different there's different things, and I've I've been getting a lot of for for, for some people like for Americans it's quite positive because they don't have this backstory of me, so things are are more kind of jarring is the wrong word, but sort of like like the whole fact that I'm like quite cheeky oh, yeah. the way I express you're, my you're these, a character that they are getting to know as yeah. well. So and, and so the fact that like everyone people in Melbourne if they buy my book and they know me so when I'm when I'm like expressing these things about racism in like this real cheeky kind of way where I'm really playing with fire because I'm, I'm not being the usual delicate sensitive thing with the way people but like Australian audiences already know me or whatever but American audiences are like oh wow this is like <laughs> like they, they, they like it but it's like they, they, they're kind of curious it's like why is this person so confident to sort of like express these delicate issues in this sort of like cheeky, politically incorrect way? It's like, oh, and, and so it, it's even, it can be a bit disorienting for them, but generally in a good way. Uh, well, you're smashing the microphone stands now like a, like a rock star, so <laughs> maybe it's time for us to start wrapping it up. Um, hey, so people can buy your book, obviously, you know, in bookshops yes. where they still exist. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a nice hardback in America. It's like, because in Australia, everything's, even if you're Selman Rushdie, mm-hmm. your first edition of, a, of your new book in Australia is softback these days. Is that right? They're yeah. not even selling hardbacks in Australia No, they, they, they sell these... I, I, it's like academic books get released as hardbacks or whatever, but if it, so, and they sell them in this kind of bigger, it's like taller and form or whatever. So that's that's the new hardback, and then after they think they've fleeced that, then, <laughs> then they release it in this smaller version, not not less words, just like smaller format. But yeah, in America, there's still the old school. It comes out in hardback with a dust cover, and so it's really great it's like my dad i always think i'm so tied in with what my dad thinks of things yeah and like like i just know my dad and i showed in the book like the heart he was just so like oh my god this is like my son right (laughs) not only put out a book now finally (laughs) finally something i can be proud of (laughs) my son not only has he put out a book but now it's it's like hardback (laughs) with the dust cover I can understand that. I can definitely understand that, mate. Uh, where can people find you, like on the internet and stuff as well? And oh, you know, Twitter. And here's the other thing: I, I imagine a bunch of your stuff um, is online because it, yeah. there'll be people listening to this who, you know, I know there's people who come from my other podcast, Tofop, who are American listeners and people from all over the world who maybe don't know you yet, so yeah, they might sure. want to check out some of the stuff that you've talked yeah, about. Yeah, I'm just on Twitter, and I guess just. I don't have a YouTube channel, but I guess you can just Google that order. Right. I also do a podcast. I've done, I, I do this podcast Sunday Night Safran on Triple J, which is the ABC Youth Network, and I also did this other 
six-week podcast <laughs> that uh, people seem to like, and it's called John Safran's True Crime. And what it is is after I came back from Mississippi, I had conversations with famous true crime writers like wow. John Berendt, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and Anne Rule and Joe McGuinness. And we, we kind of will like – the idea behind the show is like we're soldiers and like I've just come back from a war and we're going to trade war stories like about like what happens when you're out there in the field and then, you know, and it's both creative, creatively what you do and also even physically what you do, how do you protect yourself from harm if you the murderer knows your address and all that stuff like that. So, yeah, and wow. that's, yeah, so that's a six-week podcast that, um, also. And uh, what else? I don't know. Yeah, the, the, but, yeah, the, the book is called God Will Cut You Down in America and Murder in Mississippi in UK and Australia, out on all formats, you know, e-book, non-e-book, blah. However you get books. Yeah, however you read, get books. I've read it myself. It's absolutely fantastic, so please check it out. Um, I'm going to do a quick plug here at the end for myself as well. Uh, next week I'm at the uh, Sydney Comedy Store doing my completely improvised stand-up shows. What are you talking about, Will? So six of those. Uh, and then January 19, the last night of the Illuminati tour, is at the Sydney Opera House in the Concert Hall. Uh, there are still some tickets available, so get in for that. That would be really cool, Justin Hamilton doing support. Are you going to kick me straight out, or can we listen to the Wu-Tang Clan record? We can listen to the Wu-Tang Clan record before uh, you go. I'm not going to kick you out straight away. That's fine. Uh, that's a nice way to end, too. Thank you, John. <laughs>